Hey guys, welcome back to our second episode of Madari Music. Um, my name is Demarie Sestili, and I'm here with my co-conspirator, my counterpart, Dorian Wallace. Um, originally, we were going to talk about just the prison industrial complex today, um, but in more pressing information, we're going to start talking about um, some real life experiences. Um, a, a real true story uh, that some of the young people that I've been working with outside of um, here um, are facing, but also a commonality, especially amongst young people of color. Um, and so we find it important because it kind of leads us into the prison industrial complex conversation. Um, it speaks to the prison pipeline, right? And so um, I think a lot of folks have information around the prison industrial complex, but very little real life stories, real truth about how folks get in those spaces. So, um, yeah, thank you for tuning in with us again. And yeah, I just want to share a little bit of insight. So I am currently doing a youth organizing um collective building a youth organizing collective uh through an organization that i've been working with for a really long time called holla how our lives and go together um and we have recently come encounter with two young people who are uh impacted by the foster care system um and it speaks to the ills and the cracks of those systems right so young people are oftentimes placed but not receiving supports through, you know, foster parents, um, oftentimes result to homelessness for that failure to feel acclimated and supported in a part of their home environment. Um, you know, we have young people who are just not getting their basic needs met, not having food, not having shelter, not having guidance, um, but also in that pivotal teenage age where they're kind of trying to find a representation of what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman. Um, how, how do they find their place in the community? Um, where are spaces where they can be welcomed and unapologetically them, but also process their journey? Um, prior to getting on, Dorian and I were just talking about how um, a lot of folks, especially people of color, are faced with traumas um, and are given mechanisms to cope, right? And, and some of those are maladaptive. Some of our young people are, you know, finding solace in, in drugs. Some of our young people are finding solace in community in terms of their gangs or their sets. Um, and, you know, what we do know are leading into other criminal acts. And a lot of that is not because they are bad people. It's because, one, um, who is signing on to the journey to guide them in constructive ways, but also just as a construct, when we talk about healing and when we talk about therapeutic modalities, what tools are folks being offered to really unpack their trauma. And most importantly, as a young person who is constantly still living in this cycle of trauma, where is the opportunity to process this shit anyway? Right? Like, how do I talk about the, the trauma that comes from being separated from my family, my bio family? How do I process the trauma of abuse? How do I process the trauma of neglect 
when I'm still very much in a traumatic experience, right? Like I'm still being neglected. I'm still trying to figure out how to eat. And also like we, we are layering up in services in different capacities, especially as a city. Um, but just thinking of a person in a severely depressive state, how can we empower them to, you know, to, to be diligent in their own um, growth when like there's so many just real issues that they're facing every single day. And I think that is a big reason, a big way in which we're able to filter young people into the prison system, right? Is because we are kind of capitalizing or highlighting their inability to cope with very traumatic circumstances and their inability to process their past, but also current um, circumstances in real time enough to make um, more beneficial decisions for themselves, right? But even when we try to conceptualize that, I would say, isn't that a lot of responsibility to put on a young person, right? Like, oh yeah, trauma out of it, taking like just those because those are those are heavily weighted decisions, right? When we think of children and what it takes to be an adult. And for those of us that are adults listening, it's a journey to get there. It's a journey to consistently make sure your basic needs are met. It's a journey to learn to cook for yourself every day. It's a journey to make sure that you're, you know, bathing and brushing your teeth every day, right? And to be honest, when we think about familial structure, those are the things we spend most of our time teaching our kids anyway. How often do you go up to your five-year-old and say, hey, you better figure out how you're going to feed yourself every day. Hey, you better figure out how you're going to generate some sort of income, right? And so we are almost, um, system is kind of counterproductive in that we are punishing children for enacting survival techniques. Um, also coming from a place where they have no experience or, or wherewithal to enact those things in positive ways. And I'm going to pass it to Dorian and ask, like, you know, what is your thoughts on, like, how we are um, implementing, like, therapeutic tools for young people to access, but also how that relates to the prison industrial complex? Yeah, so, um, you know, just right right off the bat, uh, it is such a disservice uh, to to communities at, at large how how limited our social safety net is uh, you know for for the people that really should be in in the care of, of community and society um, you know the, the the folks that that we've worked with and the folks that you're specifically uh, working with right now, it's so clear that if we're looking at the hierarchy of needs, you know, what, what is the baseline, you know, the, the, the needs for, for shelter and the, the needs for um, food and, you know, the, the needs for some kind of stability. And then, you know, the, the next level up is safety and security. Those are not met in a full way. So there is no space for the human being to even find um, 
to even find a, a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose, let alone be in service to others who may be in those needs. Um, so, yeah. Uh, to get a little bit into the prison industrial complex, I did just pull up the Wikipedia article just because, you know, it's a, it's a good way to kind of think it through. Um, but the, the structure of the prison industrial complex is an example of a complex system comprising many institutions interacting in mutually reinforcing patterns. Minimal definitions of the system focus on the relationships between the federal and state criminal justice system, the for-profit companies that build, operate, and service public and private prisons, and the special interest groups that grow in size and influence as incarceration inc increases. These groups include ICE, police unions, correctional officers unions, private probation companies, as well as private businesses that sell surveillance and corrections technology, operate prison food services and medical facilities, and private and public sector businesses that contract or subcontract prison labor. Um, now, you said something uh, early on, DeMarisa, about turning to drugs and turning to alcohol, turning to substance abuse. One thing about mental health and about spirituality in and of itself is that alcohol use and substance abuse, when not regulated, um, actually creates a spiritual experience. Um, I've done a lot of work, uh, I mean, my not only on my own self, because I, I am an addict, um, but you know, I've talked with a lot of lot of addicts, and one question that never gets brought up amongst the addict community is, what was good about using? And to be honest, it fucking feels good. It feels good to be fucked up. Like, you feel connected to something larger. You feel comfortable in your own body. All of this. Um, now, the problem with substance abuse is that Oftentimes, we are then separating ourselves from our rational selves, and we make more impulsive decisions. Um, we also go back to keeping everything numb. I know on a personal level that, you know, as, uh, as somebody who is, you know, all in a continuous struggle with PTSD, one reason I loved alcohol so much is because the shit numbed my entire body, and I wasn't in physical pain. Um, didn't think it through that way, but once I actually came to terms with it, I actually remember the first traumatic experience I had as a sober person was one of the most challenging I've ever gone through. Um, my wife and I were walking around at a park, and I had three full days uh, where I was just in agony and we were being open about it, but we were at a park and there were these dogs in the dog park and I saw them, literally started crying, no explanation why. Um, and we ended up processing through that it was, I was seeing their joy and, and realizing I couldn't connect to it um, on, on a body level. When I was drunk, shit flowed better. You know, it just, it was very easy to feel connection and positivity towards the dogs, uh, you know, or other life forces. However, it also caused destruction in my family, 
cause me to spend recklessly, cause me to be impulsive with uh, the way I engaged uh, with my wife and with other folks, um, you know, lost control of temper, all of those sorts of things. So the only reason I'm putting this out there is to try to create an empathetic space where there are entire communities who their ancestors were either betrayed by fellow ancestors or kidnapped or both or something more complicated but there were people that were stolen from their place of origin taken to a totally new land with no rights no freedoms whatsoever um were then labeled because of an straight up an easy way to identify who was an enslaved individual and who was not enslaved uh made a marker based on on skin color identification for 300 years at this particular point there was a war to to quote unquote end this experience that wasn't the motive that wasn't the reason um but that's how we're taught in American history books. Um, after this war, uh, this horrible war was fought, um, there were terrorist cells that started to pop up all throughout the South, uh, known as the KKK. They were pulling straight up ISIS shit. They were terrorizing civilians. Um, civilians who were still not considered fully human. We always talk about the Great Migration. That is a fucking lie. It was a refugee crisis. It was people who were running from terror. Fast forward, we get to the 1960s. I, I know I'm kind of rambling. Let me step, take a step back. No, keep and it going, keep it yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, so in World War II, that was one of the final catalysts for, for what we know as the Civil Rights Movement, because there were men who literally served to fight the fucking Nazis and return home to not be considered citizens. And, um, and it was just kind of a, you know what? Fuck you. And that's how we started to, <laughs> to really fight back. And when I say we, I, 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 I'm not talking about, about my people, white folk. I'm talking about, talking about black folk. Um, and so fast forward, we now, you know, have, have the right to vote for all people in air quotes. Um, (laughs) and there's now 10 years, uh, where people are start, you know, equity is starting to happen in some very surface level bullshit way. Um, and that's when the war on drugs really gets declared. And it is so noticeable. Uh, so just to put it out there, you know, right now we talk about the opioid epidemic, which is a true epidemic. It's real. Um, I've had, at this point of recording, I've had seven friends die from heroin use or painkiller addiction. However, all seven of those friends were white men. Um, and we look at it as an epidemic. We did not look at the crack epidemic, which was planted by the CIA in the 1980s. Um, I'm totally like preaching to the choir, but where the, the whole point is that 
we are asking young people who are born into this kind of environment to handle their trauma with grace and that's fucking stupid <laughs> like it's fucking evil it, it really is um and uh yeah uh just because we're still figuring out the pass off mode um i'm muting myself because d is definitely shouting uh <laughs> and i want to hear what she has to say yeah oh man you just i'm you just got in mad bags just that um Dang, thank you, Dorian, for, for like just bringing us through the, the cycles of how we got here. And like, uh, I, I kind of jotted down some stuff like the institutions and, and reinforcing patterns, right? Um, and I think that's just what the prison industrial complex is. And like, it's not new. It's not new. It's kind of just a re-oiled machine, right? Even down to, like you're saying, ISIS is like, they the KKK, like, what do we, right? And, and in acting in the same ways, the practices are not new. The faces are new. The generations are new. The, the technology that we're using, right? They talked about um, surveillance technology. Social media has become a surveillance technology that is now being used to filter what? Black and brown people into the, into the, the prison system. Like, you know? These are not new processes. And I think you coined it when you said, like, we're expecting young people to handle the trauma with grace, which goes back to being on the plantation, right? Like the good nigger, excuse my word, was the one that went into the field and did what they were supposed to do and didn't rebuttal. Fuck the fact that it was hot. Fuck the fact that your fingers were bleeding. Fuck the fact that women were in labor picking cotton. Fuck that. Be quiet. Don't say anything. How dare you say anything, right? And so the ways in which our young people are showing up in our communities kind of is also like a generational norm, right? Like the way that there is violence within communities amongst each other goes back to like, don't forget that they were dog fighting people, especially men, right? We were taught that, that level of violence. Right. But also not being able to cope with the trauma, because that's the thing. That's something that we learn in this work is that just because you're not addressing it at the moment doesn't mean it disappears. That anger, that hurt, that frustration, that disappointment, that it, it sits with you. You journey in with that. And so where are you putting it? Right. Where are you putting it? And are you not think of a soda like when you shake up a soda? The acid sits. It doesn't matter if you crack it open now or in five minutes, it's going to still rise to the top. And, it, and, and, and even if you only twist the cap a slight bit, it's still rising. So in every way that they're getting outlets to release this stuff, they are. And with no guidance to do so because the, the issues and the burdens that they're carrying, these generational traumas that are just perpetuating are not things that young people should be carrying in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm going to put it out there because um, the folks that we've worked with at Rikers, uh, I want to ask you, how many would you say came through the foster program? 
So I can't really speak for the numbers at Rikers, right? But Rikers is reflective of the juvenile justice system, right? Um, And I was definitely an officer in the juvenile justice system before we went to Rikers. And the numbers are 98, 97% of the young people in juvenile justice are young people impacted by ACS, right? And kind of to the point of what you read, um, And on Wikipedia, ACS is kind of a special interest group, right? It's formulated for that reason, because that's how we sustain money. When we think of all of the social service systems, right? This is just my theory. Please feel free to push back. But it seems like, and and I'm being transparent about my own journey. I am, I was a mom who had to depend on social services for, um, because to be honest, oh, sorry, uh, I was a mom who had to depend on social services for a long time because my access to social service was easier than my access to education and opportunities to advance myself. That is the truth. When I was, uh, and, and also equitable wages, I'm a single mom, right? Which is another derivative of slavery and another deliver derivative of white supremacy, right? That's how, that's the way breaking up the family. So my, my children's father was formerly incarcerated. He was not able to deal with his trauma from being formerly incarcerated, which impacted his ability to show up in our household and to build a family, which kind of disintegrated our family and led me to be a single mom, right? And I don't blame him for that. Those are the systems. It's how it works. It's a commonality in our communities, right? Um, we're actually sadly more shocked when we see a two-family household than we are when we don't see one because it's become a commonality, right? But moving right along, that forced me to have to go to HRA to supplement the income that I didn't have. And I remember working a job that was about $12 an hour, $10 an hour, trying to sustain two children and going to school and going to HRA. And one, them telling me they wouldn't provide benefits for me if I was looking for a bachelor's degree because they don't cover that. Um, But gave me options to go into all of these certificate-based, low-wage paying Um, positions, right? And or, um, and I I was not allowed to work full time and receive full benefits. And despite market value rent, they would not help me supplement my rental assistant or give me rental assistance um, to pay whatever the portion of my rent was, right? And if they did have to help me, they were going to recoup it from the money I already didn't have. So what do you do? I mean, for me, I ended up, you know, just persevering and working extra jobs. But even in that, my children suffered negatively because I wasn't able to be home for a lot of their primitive years. Um, It was definitely it definitely impacted my mental health. Um, I definitely went through bouts of, of depression. It was a traumatic experience. I'm sure I'm suffering from some PTSD currently as a result of that. Um. It, it definitely broke down my family even more because there was a resentment towards my children's father and all of that. But luckily I was able to sustain myself well enough to complete whatever it is that I needed to complete. But that's just with my own intrinsic motivation. And that's a, ascribing to the journey. And as one would say, taking it with grace still didn't benefit me much. Let's think about people who just don't have the tools or the capacity to do that. There are so many ways that yeah. that could have broken someone. Right. Yeah. Um, And in that 
could have easily landed me in a correct Department of Corrections because I might have had to do something to survive. Or who's to say that those things wouldn't have impacted my children negatively so that they would have ended up in a system and or could have diminished my ability to provide as a mother and filtered them into an ACS system where they're not receiving the care and the supports that they need to filter them into another system, right? Um, Doran, you wanted to say something, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. You know, I'm uh, I'm just looking up as we're speaking, um, just in regards to the way that the United States spends its money. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know... Come on, get that pedagogy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is all... This is all connected. So... Um, according uh, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, this the most recent data uh, regarding military expenditure and military balance. So the number one country in the world in regarding uh, in regards to spending uh, on its military budget is the United States. We spend eight hundred and $1.0 billion. Um, we literally spend 38% of the entire global spending. Um, number two is China, and China spends $293.0 billion, 14%. So if you take China's entire military budget, double it, you still don't even have... Uh, there's still... Um, 10% more to get to the United States. So, that's just in the fucking world um, regarding military spending. Um, uh, going into the actual United States federal budget, um, so technically, and this is, this, is, uh, this is how you skew data, Medicare, Medicaid, other health care is the highest at 28%. The issue with this is that they are bunching together Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, other health care programs. Um, yeah, so 51% of all medical and health goes is what they're counting in this 28%. Um the next highest is national defense, which goes to all branches of the military, as well as uh, intelligence agencies. Yeah, military and intelligence. Following that is income security, which is the police force, the prison system. Um, so just to really point this out, uh, we have all of the health lumped together into 28%, whereas national defense and income security is 15 and 16. So add that together, it's 31%. But they're intentionally separating it a certain way because this is, I'm looking at federalbudgets.gov. Um, yeah. So, you know, just even looking at this, uh, federal spending goes to goes to military uh, and policing and prison more than it goes to social safety net 
Uh, it's actually really gross now that I'm digging a bit deeper into this. Wow. Yeah, it's actually very gross. Um, this is yes. some pedagogy that we give to the young people when we're doing youth organizing. Yeah. Uh, and in community budgets, you know, like each community is allocated this is, funds. This is including food stamps, unemployment right. compensation, Medicare, Medicaid, yep. Social Security. Yeah. Um, and by the way, uh, the Trump administration was uh, really focusing on slashing all of this. The largest slashing of social services came in the Reagan administration, but it was pushed forward uh, the most since Reagan during the Trump era, which is mm -hmm. horrifying. Okay, so, and then this is also broken up into hospital insurance, supplementary medical insurance, Medicare Advantage, yep. uh, prescription drugs, um, yeah, Social Security, uh, trust fund representations, Wall Street bailouts. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that goes into the, the medical budget. Yes, yes. This is part of the social social spending. Um, Services. Yeah. So if you notice, um, just right off the bat, the way that it was presented on, um, on federalbudget.gov, uh, in, in the pict pictograph was it separated internal security versus external security um, as two separate entities and it put all social services including Wall Street bailouts in uh, the social services category um, <laughs> yeah so um, Dean Marisa I have to ask uh, as a single mother of color uh, how much money from the Wall Street bailouts did you receive um, your whole life, you know, because that—that uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, what Exxon Mobil got was very much uh, similar to what your community received. Is that correct? Yeah, no, <laughs> probably zero <laughs> of those dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Zero of those dollars, right? So, you well, know, you imagine, this like America is creating the American problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> America's good. And did you, did you hear about the, the Supreme Court passing this law that um, folks in New York will be able to carry? Because allegedly it's against our uh, Fourth Amendment right. To, car to carry uh, weapons. weapons. Carry weapons. Openly okay. carry weapons. Right? Um, okay. And so I think it's another, well, one, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I kind of just feel like it's it. a way to justify just a bunch of crime, right? I think passing that law, it could go so many different ways. On the one end, we might see another Trayvon Martin type of situation. Uh, and, you know, this, this hypervigilance. I think on the other end, we are going to definitely see an uptick in, you know, intercultural violence. Um, yeah, and I'm curious as to how that became the solution to the uptick in violence. How did we say, put more weapons on the street before we say, 
hmm, let's increase the social service budget. Let's figure out what people actually need and give it to them. Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, I, I want to just, because um, you and I kind of went on a rampage, uh, which is what's going to happen. Uh, we definitely did. <laughs> I wanted to get back to the, the two young folks that you and I yeah. were talking about before we even had this fucking, uh, before we started talking. Um, so what kind of, what kind of situation, um, and you don't have to disclose, you know, any personal info, uh, we'll treat this as we treat, um, any, any clientele we work with or people that we work with. Um, you know, some, some info will be slightly, slightly altered, uh, and no, no personal details will be let out. Um, but can can you give a little bit of insight into the the per, the specifics of of the situation? I mean, so um, more specifically, the two young people are in foster care. They are um, living in you know some parts of the Bronx, South Bronx, I believe it is. Um, and so the home environment that they're in is like a a two story house. But there seems to be one foster mother on one floor and another foster mother on the other. Um, and the two young men uh, met in foster care and have been journeying together. Um, and it appears that there's some negligence happening from the foster mother. Um, the electricity is being shut off on the young people, minus the air conditioning in the home as means of punishment. Um they're also just if they come in after a certain hour and not being fed. Uh, in my personal encounter with one of the young people, um, we've probably been in session about six times. Oh, I'm sorry. Four times. Four times. Um, this young person has not eaten in any fo- before coming to any four of those sessions, at which point we do. You know, we always feed the young people, but this young person hasn't eaten. Um, and, uh, two of the young people were involved in, or allegedly involved in some sort of criminal act as a means of survival. Mm-hmm. And so are now facing the punishment system. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's, um, there's a YouTuber who I'm a, a big fan of, um, he goes by he goes by the name um, non compete. He's a former right wing libertarian capitalist turned anarcho communist. Uh, he now lives in Vietnam um, with his with his wife, and he just puts a lot of educational videos out. Um, the one thing he speaks about is the relationship between crime policing and capital. And uh, so if you or anybody you know has ever been mugged or been robbed and if you call the police, uh, they will come out, they'll make a statement, um, that's it. They usually let you know that they're probably not going to catch so-and-so, nothing ever happens. Um, I'll, I'll give two very specific examples. I saw a woman get mugged once in front of me. Um, 
uh, you know, it was like down the street, but we heard her screaming and ran up. There were two guys kicking the shit out of this woman. Um, the one dude pulled a, a weapon out and aimed it at me, and I, you know, just stood back. Uh, they ended up running off, um, and they fired the weapon. It turned out it was a cap gun. It wasn't real. Um, but this woman was traumatized because uh, she got assaulted from behind. Uh, and so we called the police. Um, two, two things about it. Uh, first and foremost, um, my military training really kicked in to, uh, to really analyze the perpetrators, what they looked like. And there were, um, two light-skinned, uh, black men. Um, I couldn't tell what ethnicity, um, however, when the people who were watching on in their apartment saw the mugging take place uh when the police came out the description given were two dark black men uh, wearing hoodies and this was not just white people who saw this this was also black people who saw this but the perception was um just by the these two individuals involved in the mugging uh that they were darker skinned when they were not um, I made a point to pay attention to the complexity of of their skin. Um, so anyways, the police showed up, took a statement from the woman, took a statement from me, took a statement from a couple of the neighbors, said, we're probably not going to catch them. And that was it. Um, the reason I brought up the YouTuber that I like is he brings up the point that this is how it happens on an individual level with policing and crime. Now, if you own a business and your business gets robbed, they show up, they've got the fingerprint kit, they do a full forensics experience, they pull up a CT, uh, CTV, whatever, whatever it's called, the surveillance system around New York, um, mm -hmm. well, around all major cities, um, and they do everything they can to catch the perpetrator. Um, and so the reason this is, this is brought up is that the way that we treat individual uh, individuals in the criminal punishment system versus the way we treat the concept of capital uh, is just completely, uh, completely unbalanced. Um, yep. And so, hey, all of that to say that um, oftentimes these young folks. Uh, when they're stealing, it is to make a slight, uh, at, at the bare minimum, it is just to get something for the day, food for the day, rent for the day, any of that kind of shit. On a much larger scale, it's to try to build up capital. It's, it, it's an attempt to, to find some sustainability. Um, this is where it gets so much more complicated uh, because when we do get into violence, uh, we're mixing in illegal ways of, of holding on to capital combined with communities of people who, are, who have been traumatized for centuries. And, and we're asking this group to... to 
be accountable for for protecting themselves. Uh, there's um I know I know I'm like rambling. I always ramble. I'm gonna ramble every fucking day. It's great. Um, but uh, so there, there's a book I'm reading right now, and it's the Body Keeps the Score. Uh, one thing that's very fascinating about uh, the way he describes it as normal memory versus traumatic memory is that in research uh, from traumatized individuals, uh, when they are asked about, like, happiest day of your life, you know, let's say uh, your wedding or the birth of a child, the way that it is retold is often in a storytelling format. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. Um, sometimes the end is the journey continues, but the point is, is that um, when we have positive memories, we tell it in an autobiographical format. Traumatic memories um, are, are much more centered on the feelings of the present moment. So, for instance, um, women who have suffered uh, sexual assault, um, rape specifically, when asked to explain the traumatic experience they will not talk about the beginning middle and end it's it's a much more fragmented story it's more about the smell of the perpetrator or the feeling of what it was like to go limp during the circumstance this exact same thing happens with war veterans uh just when speaking about um you know i'll tell another story about a friend of mine who had to kill a child um it's a really complex story uh but he was basically uh he was a sniper over in iraq um you know coming from a lower lower class family in in the south white family um so join the military because it's what you're supposed to do uh Anyways, there was a there was a child that was coming towards their fob, the fob, which is the, basically the term we use for tent bases, um, like a mobile base. Um, but there was a little girl coming towards the fob. Um, her head was down. She was like very focused. Um, and they had a translator, and they were telling this girl to not come any closer to the fob. She kept coming closer. They went bit by bit by bit, you know, saying, like, if you come any closer, we're going to have to shoot you. She ended up crossing a line where they were like, if you come... They actually started firing warning shots, you know, around her. And they gave her basically the ultimatum that if you cross this one trash can, we're going to have to shoot you. There's nothing else we can do. She crossed the trash can. My friend is the one who shot this girl. She dropped to the floor and dropped a grenade and went off. He saved about 40 people. Um, anyways, this is my telling of his story uh, where I can kind of place the beginning, middle, and end. He has completely justified, uh, his rational brain has put into the, the question, which is he did what he had to do. Uh, there was a threat. His people were in danger and he, his job was to eliminate the threat. Um, now, when we talk about political consciousness versus personal consciousness, um, this situation is horrible. And in a 
circumstantial uh, experience, I support, you know, in air quotes, what he did. He had to do what he had to do. The 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 girl had a, an explosive on her. Um, but in a political consciousness, why the fuck were we in Iraq to begin with? Yes. Why was there a circumstance where a little girl was given a weapon to to end her life to destroy thirty or forty other lives? Um, why why was the desperation at that at that level? So when we the reason why I mentioned that this is my telling of the story is I have a beginning, middle, and end by piecing together how he has spoken about it. However, this particular guy. Uh, I kid you not, and I know you're an empath too, DeMarisa, so you really do yeah. feel from people. This guy's really smart, really put together, really likable. You look him in the eyes and you can tell that that moment has never left because yeah. he killed a kid. Yeah. He, his rational brain has completely justified it. Um, society, American society has justified it. It's like, oh, it's a tough circumstance. But he has not actually come to terms with the fact that he is in agony, that he he did that, that he was in a circumstance that he had to do that. Um, so um, all of this to say uh, that traumatic memory is a much more emotional, physical experience. It is not about the rational thought. And it is about fragmented spaces of coming back into that personal experience. Another thing that is so wild about traumatic memory is that when a, and we'll call it a normal memory, autobiographical memory is, is, uh, is recalled, the story will change over time. If you interview somebody and they tell a story about their life, interview them again in 20 years, ask them to retell the same story, there will be alterations because they're remembering it in not a linear fashion, but an autobiographical fashion. However, traumatic memories are consistently the same, meaning that it will still be about uh, the, the, the experiences of the moment of trauma. Right. Um, now this gets so much more complicated uh, because all of this research is only done on people who have experienced a traumatic event. This is not about complex trauma, which is being born into a system and not being able to leave that system just by nature of how it's structured. Um, you know, we talk a lot, uh, this is where, um, you know, I'll put it this way. The most conflict I get into with my fellow left-wing socialist folks, uh, it's usually the white men who are the fucking bookworm types, but, uh, are very lacking in the, the street level organizing. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times they are so anti-capitalist that they don't understand that sometimes we have to use capitalism as a as a mechanism for survival 
And um, this is one reason I think it's incredibly important to, even though I think that the business structure is fucking evil, and I think the nonprofit organizations, uh, it's a very corrupt model and a very short-term surface-level model, this is still why, even though I... I believe that uh, I will still support black-owned businesses and black-owned uh, uh, or black-run nonprofit organizations because they are working within the system to make things to 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 try to to build healing mechanisms for this transgenerational trauma, which I think is very apparent that the the two young individuals that you are working with right now are experiencing. Yeah, um, definitely that. Like you said, there there's definitely many layers to what nonprofit is. Um, I think we're, you know, they're leaning more towards becoming special interest groups, <laughs> if not are already. Um, I mean, but also too, like, You know, we talk about capitalism and a lot of times we look at it through a lens of um, it being a derivative of like white supremacy. Right. But there are people of color who ascribe to capitalism as well. Um, And a lot of that is just a derivative of slavery, too. Um, What we we have to get to a level of consciousness Um, And like we are big on PE, like teaching political education. Um, It is important for us to quote these numbers. Like there's a seven neighborhood study. I'm going to bring it up every time we meet because everyone needs to know about the seven neighborhood study. There are seven targeted neighborhoods in New York City that fuel, I believe it's, uh, so the, 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 the prison, um, demographics are 75% BIPOC. I'm sorry, 96% BIPOC. Of that population, 75% of those folks or 85% of those folks are from these seven targeted neighborhoods. This is a study that was done, it started back in the 90s. Those numbers are, I'm sure, significantly higher now. Um, so we teach about the war because that sounds like a war. We're in war. Um, we teach about the war. I think it's important for people to understand that and be able to make these connections. Um, yeah, like we have to understand as a people that the one is not enough, right? We have to stop being um, fooled to believe that there is a way for us in the climate, the current climate. You have to understand that, like, if one person is in ACS, if one of our young people is in ACS, if one of our young people is incarcerated, if the mother down the street is not eating or your neighbor across the hall is just like really struggling and suffering, we're all still in the war. That's what we have to understand. And we have to embody that and we have to do our part. Um, and so to Dorian's point about still supporting those efforts, like, yeah, you have to, because there's so many folks and so many, as we said, even the, the budgets that are allocated to us are not supporting those folks. 
or supporting them in a way that sustains them, right? And it's all a part of the system too. It's like the sustenance of these Black-owned nonprofits gives this perceived success. Um, But understanding too that like, these folks are jumping through hoops to get funding to support their young people. They're given a quota as to how many young people they can serve. They're giving hundred block radiuses that they have to cover in order to get that money. Knowing that they need a, they need money for every single young person in the community. Um, and it's sad because I grew up, you know, like I grew up in the nineties and, you know, early two thousands, not dating myself because I know I still look 12, but I grew up in the 90s and in the early 2000s and like Parks Department raised us. Parks Department raised us. Every skill set that I have thus far, most of the, the information that informs the work that Dorian and I have done, at least from my standpoint, came from opportunities that I was allowed to create going to after school and summer camp. I taught my first dance class when I was 14. I taught my own fashion and design course before I even graduated high school through after school programming. And so it gave me the bandwidth. It gave me the the resources. It gave me the wherewithal to know how to engage with young people. I got that skill before I, I was still a young person. I'm still a young person, but I was really a young person. Right. And so like programs like that, I also like, you know, my mom passed away when I was a kid. I was raised by family who was just like definitely in the war and definitely struggling in mad ways. Um, And I did not always get the support and the love that I needed. Um, Parks Department was definitely a safe haven for me in that way. If nothing else, if, if there was no food in the house, I knew I could get the go there and get a snack of some sort. And I know that like the, the director there was so in, in tune with her job and very understanding of the war and where we were, that she was going to make sure I had some extras to put in my bag on my way home. Those folks will walk me home when it was late at night. If I didn't show up the program for a few days, folks were calling to check on me and see if I was okay. You know what I mean? When I graduated high school, folks showed up just to be present. Like they carried me. And those things change the trajectory of my life. My favorite quote, one benevolent adult can change the trajectory of a child's life forever. That is important. Because then, and not to say that like folks ain't suffering trauma from home, not saying that. It doesn't erase that, right? But it adds more options, right? Yeah, I've suffered mad trauma, but I also was given a chance because people stood up to the plate and in a collective way, you know? They didn't say, okay, well, I got my city job and my kids are fed and taken care of, so I'm good. Nah. And they brought their hearts with them to work too. This is hard work. Um, Yeah, man, I just feel like we in a matrix. That's like my favorite line. I don't hear that too. Like, it's a matrix. Um. Yeah, it's a matrix. And I think it's it's designed that way. It's designed to be a matrix. Because before you know it, when you finally realize the joke is on you, you're already in the prison system. 
or you're already in the ACS system. Like there are moms, like, first of all, where did ACS come from? Where did ACS come from? It's not like when people were like throwing people's babies in the river with rocks connected to their necks, because that's when ACS needed to be around. Right? Um, and not to say like people don't get abused at home, not diminishing anybody's experience. Like I do not in any way support child abuse, you know, and it, it, in, in any facet, any capacity. Children are not here to be punching bags or abused or harmed in any way. I'm a mother of two. I love my children, you know, immensely, but it has become another way to hunt black and brown people. Right. And it's not being used effectively. It's not being used effectively. Right. Why are we, we are, we are spending more time removing children from homes than we are giving parents support. Right. That's what we're doing. Why? Because there's another system that needs them, that needs their bodies. The goal is to get them upstate. I was talking to my partner about that. Like, if you notice ACS, most of the CPA, CPS workers are people of color, right? And then when you go to juvenile justice, most of those people are people of color. The people that are running these organizations, that sustaining them, they're not running them because they're all white-led. People who are sustaining them are people of color, majority. And then from juvenile justice, you graduate to jail, which ends up being like Rikers, right? Places like that. People of color. But when you go upstate, that demographic is different. When you go upstate to prison, it, it ain't run by people of color. That's because they got you already. <laughs> they got you already. They desensitized you in every layer. There's a reason why these layers look familiar, feel familiar. There's a reason why you go into a public school and it looks the same as it does in Rikers Island. Because the goal is to filter you through the pipeline. Right? That's why most of our budget goes towards the military and freaking um, the police. That's why. Because the goal is to get you through the pipeline. And it's also sad that we had people like Jeffrey Canada coin this stuff years ago, and we're still having the same conversations. Harlem Children's Zone is like 15, 20 years in already. Right? He's been on Oprah and all of that, singing the praises, getting all this money and building all these institutions. And we're still having the same conversation. Eddie Ellis did the Seven Neighborhood Study in 1993, and we're still having the same conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one one thing. Uh, I was on mad tangents too. Right? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's so so. I, I'm gonna just like say this on you know a white male perspective uh, is that um, the baseline impulse impulsivity between uh, white folks. Well, I'll say white male youth. Uh, versus black male youth, um, the impulsivity is is the same. Um, of course. In regards, yeah, like, we just want to get, you know, we want to get laid. <laughs> we want to, um, you know, 
listen to our music, go to our social events, like that, you know, it's like, that's what we Be in community with your friends. Yeah, yeah, we don't, you know, fuck the parents, like, you know, it's all, all that shit is the same. Now, that being said, um, when a white boy sells drugs, which a lot of my friends did, um, Mm. you know, uh, it would be just a little bit of weed, a little bit of coke, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, first off, they were not ever in situations where there were police just everywhere. Um, so, you know, we look at the, the seven neighborhood study, you know, the, the seven targeted neighborhoods, um, which are 75 percent. Um, sorry, sorry, 85 percent um, black and Latino. Uh, is Harlem, Lower East Side, South Central Bronx, Bedford, Brownsville, East New York, and South Jamaica. Um, all, you know, in, in New York City. Uh, so, so there is just a heavier police presence in black and brown neighborhoods, so the likelihood of getting caught is higher. Now, the other difference is my friends who sold weed uh, and this is a mix of anecdote and and data, but my friends who were selling their shit, it was to make some extra cash. It was like it was like yeah, I can make some extra money, you know. Like my friends want to get high. Like there were some people that were like a notch or two higher up than you know just like the I'll say like baseline selling, um, you know. However, uh, this was not the means for livelihood, and that is a major, major difference uh, just on the very baseline um, between uh, white boys and black boys and, and the relationship with drugs is, is a means of, of why you're selling it and a means on how you're getting targeted. Um, now, I, I'll tell you, like, I had, <laughs> like... You know, I, I have a friend who, who got busted twice, you know, for, for selling. And uh, he never, ever saw prison. He went to jail. He went to jail uh, for months. Like, you know, he, he was at the Ohio version of, of Rikers Island. Um, you know, he, he was away. But uh, his dad was able to pay for his bail. And he got out. And he was on he was on uh, probation for like four years, um, which that's that's another part we never really talk about with prison industrial complexes is probation and parole. Probation, for those that are not familiar, is basically a prison sentence within your own home, and parole is uh, is the post prison sentence to keep you trapped in the shit. Um, but yeah, uh, th- this individual that just came to mind, actually, you know, like he's a total redneck, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he's, uh, yeah, complicated guy. Like now that I'm actually <laughs> thinking about this dude, um, you know, but, but, uh, like, you know, for the most part, he's a, he's a good dude. Like he's, he's, uh, he, yeah, he, he, he's a good, good guy. Um, and yeah, he was on probation for a couple of years, uh, but he was able to get work. He had parents who could help him. Uh, he had both parents, just to put that out there, too. Um, you know, he, he actually d- was not involved in the foster system whatsoever. He 
lived at his parents' house while he was on probation. Um, so already, the system, he was just, he was not welcome into the system of the pipeline. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, you got in trouble for the illegal thing you did, but you're not actually going to be a part of, of this, this fucking complex. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is just, uh, you know, a, a little bit of anecdote, um, to just indicate to, you know, any, any of, uh, the white folks that are, that are listening to this, um, just realize that on the baseline level, like, we're all coming from the same exact fucking place, but that the systems are not targeted at us the same way. And that targeting raises trauma. It raises um, the, the likelihood of being in through the system regularly. Uh, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about, uh, you know, how... how black families uh their their fatherless homes well we don't talk about where are the dads it's like they're in fucking prison they're on probation they're like on, because of yeah because of this shit and it's just um i mean this shit is fucking targeted it's uh i don't know how conscious uh everybody involved in the targeting is um but there are definitely people who are very conscious of it um, you ever hear that, uh, the Richard Nixon, um, his staff guy, uh, Lee, um, what's his name? I think it was, yeah, Lee Atwater quote. Um, I'm not gonna <laughs> say, uh, the whole, the whole quote, cause there is some, some slurs, uh, so I'll just say, you know, the, the letters. But, um, yeah, Lee Atwater was a political consultant and strategist uh, for the Republican Party. He was an advisor to Ronald Reagan and George W. George H.W. Bush. Uh, and I forget exactly what he did. Yeah, okay, here we go. Um, okay, so here's the whole quote. Uh, as, the, as to the whole Southern strategy that Harry S. Dent Sr. and others put together in 1968, opposition to the Voting Rights Act would have been a central part of keeping the South. Now, you don't have to do that. All you need to do to, uh, do to keep the South is for Reagan to run in place on the issues that he campaigned on since 1964, and that was fiscal conservatism, balancing the budget, cutting taxes, you know, the whole cluster. So then the interviewer says, but the fact is, isn't it, that Reagan does get to the Wallace voter and to the racist side of Wallace, the Wallace voter. Um, by doing away with legal services, by cutting down on food stamps. By the way, this Wallace has no relationship to to me. Uh, <laughs> he's talking about George George Wallace, uh, who I believe was was he what governor of of I forget which state actually. But a anyway, so here's where I'm gonna edit some of what I say. So Lee Atwater says, "Y'all don't quote me on this." As, as they're going to quote him. You start out in 1954 saying, N-word, N-word, N-word. 
But 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you. It backfires. So you gotta say stuff like forced busing, state rights, and all that. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, that we are that we are doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing. And a hell of a lot more abstract than saying N-word, N-word. So any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. That was the strategist for Richard Nixon and um, Ronald Reagan. And he's talking about... Um, wow. Yeah, all of this economic conservatism that gets pushed by uh, both part, both major parties, um, the unconscious, I mean, he says subconscious back burner, is that it is racially targeted. Right. This is the United States. And, uh, hey, um, you know... Richard Nixon was the man who coined the term war on drugs mm-hmm. and Ronald Reagan was the man who implemented the war on drugs uh, and cut uh, you know they, they, they call him American slasher for the reason that he was slashing social safety net right and left um, mm-hmm. and also really pushed forward the war on drugs increasing targeted policing to look for for drug offenders. Um, mm-hmm. And this is all while the CIA is putting crack out into the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It gets a notch deeper, too. Uh, if you're, are you familiar with the Iran Contra scandal during the Reagan, Reagan administration? No. All right. So the very short version is that. Um, uh, the Reagan administration here actually I'm just going to pull it up <clears throat> yeah the Iran Contra affair um, it was a political scandal in the United States that occurred during the second term of the Reagan administration between 1981 and 1986 senior administration officials secretly facilitated the arms uh, to the Khomeini government of the Islamic Republican of Iran, which was uh, the subject of an arms embargo. The administration hoped to use the proceeds to arm sales to fund the Contras of Nicaragua. Um, So basically, they were doing illegal arms sales in Iran, and this was particularly to um, uh, when Iran was in the midst of... uh, going to war with the USSR, communist country, uh, and they were using this money to arm uh, guerrilla groups, right-wing guerrilla groups known as the Contras, who are also anti-communist in Nicaragua. Um, so this was uh, this is a scheme that was uncovered in 1986 uh, that basically the Reagan administration 
had uh, given given the go-ahead for the United States government to um, arm and launder money uh, to fund anti-socialist organizations in both the Middle East and South America. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just to put this through, uh, this, um, this was actively against uh, social conscious raising. Um, and this also helped fund what uh, became a lot of the cocaine manufacturers and uh, marijuana uh, distributors um, in, in Central and South America to work its way back to the United States. And it was also uh, basically... Um, cheaper to uh to crystallize cocaine and sell that as crack and let that pour into the seven neighborhoods that were targeted so yeah <laughs> it's really depressing wow. <laughs> right <laughs> jesus fuck it's fucking depressing very much yeah so um I think we've been on for an hour now, so uh, <laughs> yeah. So this is the prison industrial complex being discussed in real time by uh, by DeMarisa Steely and Dorian Wallace. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out, Dee? No, <laughs> I think I think this was a really heavy one. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> We wanted to do a deep dive conversation on uh, political industrial complex, and Di Marisa messaged me and was like, "We're in a situation with some youth." She explained it. And we were like, "Oh, let's talk about that." And then it was like, "Wait, no, this is directly connected to the issue at hand." So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I think my closing um, sentiments would be. Um, you know, we, we tend to be distracted on the issues, right? So, like, close down Rikers, build borough jails, gun reform. All those things are important. But they are not fixes to any of the system. No. In no way. Yeah, we can close down Rikers, but Rikers wasn't always Rikers. That's like horizons and crossroads. Like we, again, we're repeating cycles. We closed down Spofford. But then we just filter young people into Horizons and Crossroads. Yeah. Or we filtered them into Rikers and then turned around and said, no, we still need to separate young people from adults. So then they build the, uh, they, they're utilizing a Horizons and a Crossroads, um, which is the same system. You're going to shut down the Rikers and create another system. Um, it, and it could be, I think, even worse to put it in people's boroughs, in their backyards. Because we're further desensitizing young people to the punishment system, right? But but the the fix is in what's what is streamlining our young people into the system. What is streamlining our men into these systems? That's where the fix is. You know, what I mean, the push needs to be more around increasing social supports, increasing the quality, um, the quality, but also cultural relevance of the education that we're giving our young people. 
the opportunities and the, the outlets that we're giving to our young people. That's where the fight needs to be. That's where the, the rallying and the protesting needs to be, even down to the, 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 the violence that we see from police. Right. And like we're rallying for the lives of this person and that person and a different person every few months. And those things are important, right? Because we want to honor our ancestors. We want to honor their legacy. We want to honor and, and acknowledge the trauma and like the disproportionate uh, practices of our system. Yes. But when we, if we were to be a little bit more preventative in that we are rallying for social services and support and all those other things will filter their ways out. If they have, they have, they only get the same hundred percent of the budget, however many billions of dollars it is. Right. And so we're saying, take less of that money and spend it on war, take less of that money and spend it on policing, community policing. More of that has to go into social service and they got less to be putting people over policing communities. Right. But also my last piece before I close is we have to be vigilant. Right. Understand the language. This is a war. This is a war. We are at war. Right. And so in that thinking of war in, our, in its rarest form and our deepest understanding of what war is outside of the war on BIPOC. Right. Would you ever go into battle and just lay there? Like, come on, that's where, like, you you have no choice but to be involved. You have no choice but to stand up. You have no choice but to speak out against the, the ills of your community. And this is not just a Black, a, a person of color problem. It's not just a Black people's problem. This is not just a Hispanic person's problem. This is not just a, 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 problem, a, a problem for people who are not born in this country. This is a us problem. Because we're all negatively impacted by this stuff. We're some way directly connected and affected, whether we are the enforcers or whether we are receiving the residual effects of it. And that part is not black or white. That part is all. And so, yeah, that's my Asada piece for today. <laughs> yeah. And uh, to close out on my end of it, um, you know, so y'all are going to learn that I, I, I listened to like 15 audiobooks. books minute not really but um <laughs> you know I, I i do i try to educate myself a lot um and uh i just recently finished the um guerrilla warfare handbook uh by che guevara as well as the motorcycle diaries where he um after he graduated college i think it was did a trip on motorcycle around all of South America where he um, really came to his own uh, on his political uh, awakening. And one thing that I think is really pertinent uh, to what Marisa and I are looking at is, um, you know, when we think of Che Guevara, we think of him as a revolutionary leader uh, and um, you know, we, we just think of him as, as a revolutionary figure. Um, but he went to school to be a doctor and he joined, um, 
he joined the Cuban Revolution as a as a medical advisor to treat people. And um, when I was reading both of his books, he is really looking at these social systems as uh, as a doctor looking at any illness and trying to treat it. And he was treating revolution as a form of medicinal work. Um, and so, you know, uh, we're both uh, very therapeutically minded folks. Um, and uh, if we wanna if we wanna treat this, um, you know, we really have to combine uh, our political education and our our healing modalities together because they're they're really one and the same. And with that being said, this is our second episode. Uh, so, you know, um, y'all can support us on Patreon. We're still figuring all of that out. Uh, but yes, you can just yes. click on the description. We've got everything there. Uh, we also have a website, madarimusic.com. That's M-E-D-E-R-I-M-U-Z-I-K. Um, you know, follow me on, you know, all the social medias. Uh, D, I don't know where, where can people find you? Um, yeah, they can find me on the website for now. I'm still building my Madeira music footprint. Yes. Cool. And with that, we'll see you next time. Yep. See you then. Thank you.